Welcome to Behind the Blade Podcast, episode 23. Today in the Knife News, we look at 63 things your Swiss Army knife can do to help you survive in the wilderness. We also delve into the epic legend of the Bowie knife. You heard how I said that, guys? Bowie? We'll get to more of that later. We have the lovely ladies from Skinbender Leatherworks slash Vehement Knives in studio today to answer your leather crafting questions and, of course, your Q&As. Stay tuned. All right, gang, we are back. Episode 22, playing a little catch-up. You guys are going to get two episodes this week. Oh, but wait, Matt, it's episode 23. Oh, it is. It's Epi- episode 23. Math was, yeah, like I said, <laughs> you're, getting, you're back-to-back. We just dropped 22 today. Or we Jim did, just yep. dropped 22 today, and we are here for 23. I just had a five-hour energy, not not even one-fifth of its metered time ago, about an hour ago, <laughs> and I'm very excited because we've got some big stuff for today. Um, I'm going to hijack. I already know I'm going to hijack a little bit of the news, but... Totally okay. Mr. Stewart. Yo. What do we have in the news? We have... Oh, wait. Is that the normal order? Or do we well, do, what are we, we carrying? Usually we do the what, what we're carrying. Usually do we do what they're carrying. So I, I, I've got a sneeze on deck. Yeah. So let's knock out these two articles and I can figure out how to deal with that sneeze. <laughs> I have to like start <laughs> right. a light bulb or something like that. So All just right. Give me a second. All right. Let's get uh, the news done and then we'll get to the what are you carrying because <laughs> I've got... Guys, I'm... Just super excited about what is in my bag today. So, anyways, uh, All right. let's, what do we got? Industry headlines from around the world, brought to you by KnifeNews.com. Knife news for knife people. All right, we got the news. All right, we got something that's pretty cool. There's an author from Knife News from a, an article posted on August 16th, 2017. Author tackles 63 survival tasks using his Swiss Army knife. Nice. Which Swiss Army knife was it? It looks like a. I think it, I think that's a cadet. Let me see. I think it's a cadet. Hang on. I got to turn around our third. We need a lazy Susan for the. We Chromebook. do. We do. Which one is that one? Oh no, that's a uh, uh, champ. Champ. Is okay. That, is that a champ? Yeah, it's got the saw, bottle opener, spear point, smaller spear point, cap lifter, wire stripper, flathead screwdriver, all corkscrew, toothpick, and tweezers. It's like the champ, or maybe the Spartan. Could be. All right. Well, that's 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 homework for you guys. Yeah. Which one's which? No, no, I gotta look it up. <laughs> now we're doing it. Who would think that a Swiss Army knife could make an ideal survival tool? Victorinox aficionado and knife safety educator Felix Immler provided proved 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 its metal after spending three months building a campsite with just a sack at his side. He documented the experience in the Swiss Army knife book recently released in English. Over the course of his expedition, Immler built an entire campsite that includes a bed, ladder, cooking area, and a table with chairs. Wow. Using just a sack may seem limiting, but Immler reckons it as one of the ultimate survival knives. Quote, in my opinion, your survival knife has to be in your EDC. Well, I can agree with that. I'd say for sure. For sure. You should be able to perform survival tasks with what you normally carry. I mean, it just makes sense. With a Swiss Army knife as an EDC, I have everything I need. Fixed blades may be more durable, but he still favors the compact approach of carrying a sack. The emphasis on these tools in is his preference as an outdoorsman, not a gimmick. With a few techniques, tricks, and imagination, techniques, tricks, and imagination, you can do so many little things with a portable pocket knife. And that's what I express with my books. So oh, he, I'd like to read those. Yeah, that sounds pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, it was I mean, called. I, I love the survival. It was so. called the Swiss Army Knife Book. Oh, and there's a link to Amazon, so it's hey, on Amazon. Sweet. The Swiss Army Knife Book by Felix Immler. So definitely check that out. That looks really cool. Um. 
He wanted to condense all he knew about bushcraft into a single volume. The first five sections detail 63 campsite projects, while the last three address topics related to outdoor essentials, gathering materials, knife use and safety, and the legal aspects of long-term camping. Uh, the cover oh, of the book features, features the Victorinox camper, which contains three tools Imler considers essential, a blade, saw, and a reamer. Personally, he favors the Ranger Rip 79 because of its larger form factor. So, uh, and, and it also... So, what was that? He prefers the... He prefers the Ranger Grip 79. So that's a, that's also a Swiss Army knife. Um, is that the one he did the test with? I'm looking right now. I don't think so. No, that's a, this is a different one. It almost oh, looks okay. like a, it's got it's, it's got roughly I the see, same tools. But it has the handle of the, the military yes. model or yes. the Trekker, but with the rubber inlays and all right, that Right, okay. exactly. That's exactly what it is. And so it had, this one has all the tools that he described, but it's condensed down into pretty much just those tools. Okay. So it's got a large knife. It's got a saw. It's got the bottle opener. It's got the reamer. It's got the corkscrew yep. and you know the cap lifter, et cetera. Um, 72 bucks on that. Not bad. Um, in 2010, Imler was working in a children's home and spent a lot of time outdoors with his pupils. Quote, I found that many children children are interested in knives and carving. I mean, that's been my experience, too. I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it just, yeah I, mean, I think it's... Yes. I think yeah. inherently we're all kind of a little bit infatuated with knives, but it's up to the individual. And if they're out in the woods with you, mm -hmm. they're probably already going to be interested in knives. Probably. And kids like carving. Yeah, they do. Absolutely. Uh, he devised a pocket knife driver's license workshop to certify their competence with a blade. So we're talking about the kids here, which is excellent. It's really cool. It kind of reminds me of the Boy Scouts and the and the card where you'd lose the corners if you if you were if you were an idiot with your knife yeah you remember that yep i mean yep. i thought that was i thought that was just it's a good system it teaches a little bit of responsibility and there's a consequence if you're irresponsible i mean and uh and and you're allowed to carry a knife as long as you have that card so i'm, I'm not quite sure how it works out now but at least that's how it was when i was in boy scouts years ago um so this work did, so this work of that program did not go unnoticed by victorinox who helped him design it into a full-time career no kidding Ed, yeah educating educating kids in the use of knives Imler's first book taught kids carving with a Swiss Army knife, and he worked on a sequel for his next effort. The locations and projects are more urban and a little bit more challenging. So that's kind of cool. So you got like a, your, your bare bones in volume one and volume two, you step it up a little bit. So, yeah. And another Victorinox news, the company just released a new version of the Spartan model, the Spartan PS. It features the same tool complement as the Spartan, but a new dark polyspectral coating. Oh, I was reading an article tools. on this. I yeah? thought it was kind of cool. It's like black iridescent black and some are monochrome so it's like white scales with black tools oh that's cool but that's polyspectral supposed to reflect hey, go ahead and read it but yeah no that yeah, yeah that was it no i'm looking at it right now i just pulled it up yep black tools black tools and and uh the black plastic thing with a little bit of a lanyard that goes on the back of it it's pretty slick i thought it was neat and uh, you know it was one of those uh unfortunately for me i i, I haven't purchased it yet but it was mm -hmm. one i think johnny from copus designs i think yeah. i was telling him about it and while i was talking to me amazon one right there <laughs> and so but yeah. uh like I, I i saw it and i was like that's kind of hot and i don't like white mm -hmm. scales like i'm not into that but like when i saw it i was like okay that's pretty sweet this is it's pretty slick yeah i'm yep. looking at it now this is nice everything's nice and clean very so yeah definitely check that out so that's what's going on with that. So he, uh, in his book, he details uh, 63 different things in normal survival situations that you can use with uh, what looks like, what was it? What was it? A Swiss Army camper. Oh, Victorinox a camper. camper. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I'm, I'm trying to look it up. Sorry, guys. I'm actually on Victorinox's website right now. There it is. <laughs> it's the camper. It's the camper. Okay. Oh, I have one of these. Do you? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Oh, my God. That's a great price. $33.50? That's... What are you seeing? Oh, about? I'm seeing I'm on Smoky Mountain Knife Works for 25 bucks. Oh, 3350 is yeah. on Victorinox, which right. is the MSRP obviously. But I mean for 25 bucks, 
I don't twenty to thirty five dollars sure. after yeah. tax and shipping and all that stuff. I I mean that's that's all you would need. I mean, it's a great little tool. That's cool. Yeah. So again, we're back to Swiss Army knives and how cool they are because it's true. So all right, next thing in the news. A little bit of a little bit of an artsy thing, but it touch but it touches on uh, typically what we normally talk about. There's a filmmaker out there by the name of Roman Polanski, Matt Montiega. <laughs> Roman Polanski, uh, Nolan uh, Christopher Nolan actually. <laughs> so <laughs> Matt Montiega of Sky Definition Motion Pictures is currently filming Everyday Carry, the official documentary or EDCD. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, it provides to aim an Sorry. overview, or it aims to provide an overview overview of the EDC uh, community for a global mainstream audience, and that's kind of all of us. All of us fit kind of fit into that thing. What we carry every single day, what we feel is essential to our normal commute and our normal, you know, just being around. I think know, people who are even unaware that they, quote unquote, EDC, still EDC. Oh yeah. I mean, there's still people. I mean, whether it's yeah, I got to see that Abraham Lincoln's EDC. It was his glasses and mm-hmm. like a pocket Bible and a handkerchief and stuff like yeah. that. But everybody has their mm-hmm. daily rotation, and it doesn't have to be a Sebenza. No, it could just be like whatever it is. Whether it's a lighter, your cell phone, your car keys. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even just that. And then some people are like, well, let's add a flashlight to the mix. Right. Let's add a pocket knife. Let's add mm-hmm. a fixed blade. So I think everybody EDCs to some. I think it's broad appealing in that sense, what he's doing, because everybody does it, may not even be aware of it. I agree with that. That's pretty cool. So, so far, they've conducted more than 50 hours of interviews with over 35 top flight makers of EDC items. In addition to knives, flashlights, pens, nucks, pry tools, and more are getting the big screen treatment. Touching on each type of item in adequate detail means that EDC D will have a runtime of over two and a half hours. It's a long documentary. Usually documentaries are about an hour or less. Yeah. Well, I know? mean, yeah, that's a, that's a, it, yeah, hopefully it, I'm sure it's very interesting. It, mm-hmm. it should be pretty interesting to keep you there for an episode of Lord of the Rings. That's true. <laughs> that's how, right. that's how long that is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it, it should be, it should be pretty good. <laughs> keep the same beats. Okay. Now is, now is our equivalent of, of the dwarf fighting. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, knife industry stars lending their perspective include um, Serge Panchenko, Ken Onion, Jen Anzo, oh, yeah, and, Lucas, heavy hitter names, and Lucas Burnley. Knives play a huge role, Mantiega explains. We'll go into the custom makers and also uncover the more mainstream production stuff. If you're a knife guy, you'll love this film, says the director. Hey, I think we fall into that category yeah. at the very least. Yep. Knife yep. guys. We'll have to check this out. Yeah. So I, I guess we'll keep in, uh, keep in touch with you guys, too, about uh, exactly where you can find us. We should make a drinking so. game out of it where you have to <laughs> chug a beer every time somebody busts out a... Uh, very expensive brass knuckle. <laughs> <laughs> this is my brass knuckle made of pure copper. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it has a titanium core. It was actually molded around it. Because <laughs> you know that would sell. That would yeah. absolutely sell. And, so, and good for Lucas. You uh-huh. know, uh, one thing that I did notice, and I may be speaking out of class on this, and you guys feel free to chime in and correct me at any mm-hmm. point, but, uh, you know, he never gouged on those knucks that no? he put out. No, he actually kept a really reasonable price, and I don't remember what it was. Um, so for any of you guys who don't know the backstory, I'm just going to give you kind of the Cliff's Notes, and you're free to look into this, but uh, Lucas Burnley, they were they were cheap. They were very inexpensive mm-hmm. when he, I want to say they were maybe sub $100. Yeah. And it was the yeah. secondary market that made him go insane to really? like four, 600 bucks. Holy crap. And so it was the secondary market that made it go nuts. And I know to some people who may or may not be in the know, that could be kind of like a... 
who does this guy think he is? Well, he's a hell of a designer mm-hmm. and he, you know, I don't know him personally. I just haven't had the fortune of meeting him, but a hell of a designer. And he created this kind of paragon, just right place, right time mm-hmm. sort of thing. And it went insane, like on USN and stuff like that. So the secondary huh. market is what hiked it way up through the roof. But as far as I could tell, it, you know, he came out the gates with a very honest and modest price point on it. Now, of course, he has some like fancy customs and so many other makers have jumped on this bandwagon mm-hmm. as well. Sure. Um, and those can be a little bit spendy, like out of zirconium or something. But you have oh, to understand right. the machining time and the material costs that go into that. So I just thought that was worth mentioning, though, that um, you see these kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, exorbitant prices on them. And he was a stand up guy. He, he came out the gates very modestly and it just took off in the secondary market. Yeah. <laughs> No, well, good for him. And yeah. did he? He never really changed his pricing structure at all after that blow up or anything. I, or? I think he lotteries them and stuff okay. like that. And I think yeah. some things have changed. I haven't followed it that closely, but that was in the early stages of this. Oh, our special guest just arrived Uh-oh. with beers and koozies in hand. Um, uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's just kind of interesting. Um, anyways, so that's just my, my <laughs> two right. cents. It's worth exactly what you not paid a problem, for it, guys. Not a problem. All right, should we? Uh, now that we're done with that, what are you carrying? Okay, I thought you'd never ask. All right. All right, so here it is. So <laughs> okay. hold on, we'll build up. So going back to that Swiss Army knife kind of conversation we had in the first news article that that guy had. Um, today, not knowing that that was going to be today's news, today mm-hmm. I actually brought with me what my, I don't want to even say ultimate survival items are, but what my newest survival items are in mm-hmm. the bladed world that I think are very adequate and what you can also use in their stead should you not have these available in your locale. So first off, we're going to start with my trusty Swiss Army knife pioneer that I carry with me every day. And you know what? Today I left the house without a regular folding knife. This is all I oh, had. Oh, really? Was this pioneer. Yeah. And I had to use it. Um, what? You know, you know what I used it for? Why? What did you use it for? I used it for uh, two tasks today. Okay. okay. Oh, three. Three. Okay. Uh, I had to cut some paracord, which okay. is to be expected. Um I had to divvy up a donut, a chocolate frosted donut, <laughs> and so I used the spear point blade on the Swiss Army knife. I think Pioneer. there's still chocolate on it. And yeah. It's probably <laughs> chocolate, and then a little bit of resi- residue from my last task, which is open a box containing another knife. So that that is all right. So there you go. And I was able to do it um, not as conveniently as a one-handed opening knife, but mm-hmm. I was able to do it pretty aptly. So uh, I'll stand by the 63 things you can do with a Swiss Army knife. There are three of them. Um, and a donut can help you survive, especially if you split it with your significant other. That's essential to your survival. Yeah, it is also. Yeah. Um, I'm also carrying, this is a gift from a good friend of mine mm-hmm. and he knows that I like olive drab and he's like, I found something olive drab and it's a knife. You got to have it. And I've always kind of been interested in this knife, but I've mm-hmm. never pulled the trigger on one now, myself. Now, one thing I don't know, because I've seen this knife before, and I know that, what, Ontario makes it? Yes. Ontario makes this one? Yeah, yeah, Ontario, what, yep. What's the model called? What this is, it called? is the Ontario Rat 1. And okay. Oh, my God. So what this is, in my mind's eye, this is the, uh, what would you call it? wilderness version of like a spider co resilience okay and i would yeah, put yeah, the yeah. resilience as an urban version sure and yeah. this would be outer out of urban there's so. your mountains version yeah, yeah. exactly so gotcha. as as a woods utility folder you're going hiking maybe you're looking to outfit your bug out bag on a budget or something like mm-hmm. that it, this is a rock solid ridiculously nice knife for what i want to say is like 30 bucks on street value i think so too yeah and it, it's just baller like i i mm-hmm. love it it's got four 
position clip carry, so you can go tip up, tip down, right. left, right. Now, of course, it's a liner lock, so uh, all you southpaws out there, you're going to be limited to that well-known right-handed carried by a lefty liner lock. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It'd be cool if they made a left-handed side of it, but at least the thumb studs on both sides. Yep. Though. Yeah. So yeah. Th- ambidextrous thumb so, stud. Yep. An action that is just, I mean, lightning fast. Yeah. It's just so fast for being on bushings as opposed to bearings. I also like that it doesn't have a backspacer. It's standoff construction, Mm -hmm. so it's very easy to clean out and keep clean. Right. And it has one of my top requirements. Don't ask me why. I'm just a weirdo. I love having a (laughs) lanyard hole that can fit two pieces of paracord through it. Nice. So it has a looped... uh, I'm sorry. It has a lanyard hole that will fit a looped piece of paracord so you have quick removal if you want to, which that's a big deal to me. When it's single, you really have to, and I'm not a commitment guy, but you really have to commit to tying it yep. on there. Yep, you and do. And then it's on there until you cut it off or untie right. it. Right, right. I've just, I've, I've disappointed so many people that have come in and say, hey, can you touch my knife up? And it has one of those single knot, like super, super complicated paracord knots yep. on it. Really? And they're like, yeah, it took me like an hour to figure out how to do this. And I'm like, well, can you cut it off so I can polish your knife? Because <laughs> I'm not going in the buffing room with it. No, it's going to get dead. <laughs> It's a real good way to get dead. We have a fun anecdote about that, but we'll cover that some other time. Yes, that's so. Come to a grinding, and you'll hear that story in living color. Yeah. So what I have for my, um, and I don't want to say on a budget because some of this stuff can get a little bit spendy, but what I have is today's ideal survival loadout based on the equipment that I had in my drawer and that was new to me that I wanted to try. So I will be taking this out to the woods and giving all these things a spin, but I also have this. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. I yeah, got you were it. telling me about this. This is cool. What is that? Black linen with brass? Yeah. Brass pins? So this is a Newt Livesey. 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 Yeah, I'm not sure how to yeah. pronounce the last name. Uh, what's the knife company? Wicked. Wicked Knife. Wicked Knife Company. Wicked Knife Company USA. Yep. yep. So it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a custom made, and I want to say they're 1095. It's a custom made machete sporting a blade of, I don't know, 12 inches, I want to say. Yeah, that's about 12. 12 inches. Okay. It's got a beautifully yeah. radius spine, which I kind of like for batoning because it mm-hmm. preserves your batoning stick. It's um, true. There's nowhere to strike a fire steel on it, but guess what? Fire steels come with strikers. so uh, And, and, and they work it. better than the spine of your knife anyway. Yeah. And, so. But what this is, this is a big, heavy duty. It's comparable to a hungless, although the blade is a little bit longer and it may be just a touch heavier, but it's got the same kind of handle height and everything. It's, it's got the right kind of balance, something you could swing all day. Oh, I, I'm this, very this confident. Is, this thing is really cool. I can't wait to take it into the woods, but with something, a thick spine, large bu- bush knife. And when I say thick spine, I mean not an eighth inch machete. I right. would say this thing's probably tipping the scales at three sixteenths. It's definitely not a, a five eighths yeah, monster it, chopper. No, this no, no. Is no. More, it's, it's more like machete. five sixteenths. I bet if we were to measure it, it'd be one eight seven. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, uh, I, I really am a huge proponent, especially growing up in the Southwest and clearing trails and stuff out in scrub oak mm-hmm. and all that, as I used to. I'm still a machete guy. Um, I don't think that'll ever go away. Maybe mm-hmm. spending some time in hardwood forests, I'll change my tune. But you know what? <laughs> I don't think so. So I was really excited to get this, yeah. but to have a large bush knife, which performs very similarly to an axe in some instances. You mm-hmm. can baton with it and stuff. Um, but more importantly, it'll slice through that, that thin green foliage as you're clearing your trails. And, and that's what you're looking to do. You're looking for quick snap cuts just so you can get it out of your way. Yes. So you can blaze a path. Yep. And you I want mean, just enough yeah. weight that you can take a branch maybe uh, inch an in inch, diameter. An inch, yeah. Yeah, it, pretty deftly. So right we've got the big bush knife. We've got the folding utility knife, which is going to perform probably 90% of your camp mm-hmm. tasks or hiking or tramping tasks if you are a, a Morris Kachansky fan. Yeah. Um, and then you have your fine tool, which is also your multi-tool in the Swiss Army Knife Pioneer. 
Now, of course, I have a myriad of other mid-size blades. My go-to staple is the Felkneven S1. Mm -hmm. Great uh, knife. I mean, that, and that's set in that Almar sear sheath or whatever this is that Which I is got awesome. at a gun show. And it holds the Felkneven DC3 and a Light My Fire Fire Steel. And all that's kind of like custom add-ons to that. But that's my go-to camping knife. Mm -hmm. And then there's the... VMA Knives Tunnel Wrap, which you guys know I don't like plugging my own stuff on here, but it fits that mold for the five and a half inch blade camp knife. Yes, it does. And so Absolutely. you got to get a lanyard on that next. I need yeah. to. And I uh -huh. also need to take it out in the woods. That's why I kept it. I made mm -hmm. one for myself and for the shop archives, but also so we could really test the hell out of it. So sure. um, any VMA Knives fans, you'll have to hear more about that on our page as I go through and put the Tunnel Wrap through its paces. But having this large bush knife is something I haven't had for about a year now. And I felt naked without it, so I'm very excited to have this. And that mixed with this Rat One, which was, like I said, a gift, so it has some sentimental value to it. Mm -hmm. And this little Swiss Army knife. If that guy could do 63 camp tasks with just this, imagine what he could do with these three simple <laughs> knives. You know? Oh, yeah. He built half a skyscraper or something. Yeah, you know, Just poplars. Yeah, yeah, just, just a long <laughs> yeah. cabin for days. So I'm very excited about that. I, it's a new knife day. This is a mail call day. You guys understand that. I mean, everybody who's listening at some point has been at work thinking it's on my porch right now. Yes. I want to have, I, I currently own it yet. I've never seen it. I, I need to get home. Take so, sick. Uh, we will, once we kind of get into the new studio, mm -hmm. we're going to be doing more video feeds and I will put this, uh, newt live, say live, say live, see, I'm going to be putting this through its paces and I may even come across another hoongless and go toe to toe just to see, uh, you know, just because it's fun. You yeah, know what I mean? Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so that's a wrap before I geek out and run out in your yard and start cutting up your garden. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anything else in the news? No, that's it. That's it. We're done. All right. New we, section. We will be back with one epic history segment. So sit down and buckle up. It may run a little bit over time because we have a lot of information to cover, um, but I think it's going to be worth it. I'm surprised we haven't covered this yet. So we'll be back in a flash. This segment of Behind the Blade Podcast is brought to you by my friend and volunteer mentor who teaches me all kinds of stuff about the knife industry. And if you guys ever wondered, we share this information freely. And so I'm very appreciative of to him of that. But he is also a sponsor of the podcast, Mr. Tom Krein, the grindmaster himself. And if you guys haven't had the chance to participate in one of his Have It Your Way events on his page, Jim, what's his page address on Facebook? His page address on Facebook, his group is facebook.com slash groups slash crime knives. There you go. So what this is, this is awesome when he does the Have It Your Ways. He grinds out about four or five different blades and you get to pick your handle material, the finish, like all kinds of things. So he'll have these kind of pre-made although handmade blanks and you get to design the knife of your dreams within the parameters of what he has set up so it's a great way to get one of his knives without well i mean his books are closed quite frankly so but without having to wait years of backlog awesome guy knowledgeable historian and just kind of that innovator in the shop which we all appreciate as makers so go check him out at uh, also crimeknives.com is that right crimeknives.net dot net crimeknives.net yes sir and let him know that we sent you please and we are back for a history segment that I hope you guys find to be of epic proportions because we had something to celebrate, I think, September 1st yep, in did. Texas. We, we, we called it National Bowie Day. 
Buoy Day. I think Bowie we pronounced day. it wrong. I did. Buoy Day. It's Buoy Day. Jim and I have been at odds with people. There are two camps that pronounce one pronounces it Bowie, the other pronounces it Bowie. And I've always said Bowie sounds kind of slackjawed to me. I'll pronounce it Bowie. Turns out I was wrong. It is Bowie, so we can put that to rest. <laughs> it is absolutely pronounced Bowie to rhyme with Louie. Right, uh, and that mm-hmm. is per Wikipedia on the history of resin. Bowie. I have to train myself to say this. Yes. But today in history, we are covering the Bowie knife. It's mystique. It's controversy. It's going to be a little bit of a long one. So sit down, shut up, and hang on. Uh, so as some of you guys may know, a Bowie knife, and this is directly, I've got several articles here in front of me. This one is coming from Wikipedia. And please, guys, donate your three bucks to Wikipedia so I stop getting the uh, alerts. I need to throw my <laughs> ten bucks into the hat, too, because they do provide... Not just behind the blade podcast, but they do provide a wellspring of knowledge for free, nonprofit, and and it's a self governing thing. I mean, if you need a change to do to do any sort of change in any one of the articles, you just log in, you make the change, you set your reference, right, and then it becomes it becomes the companion that people look to. That's right. So, so it's almost self governing. So it's a really cool resource. Yep. And not to not to not to plug them. They don't pay us for this or anything. We just no. We just like Wikipedia. I think we earned so, our three bucks though. Yeah. So <laughs> everybody chip in. Okay. All right. So a Bowie knife, pronounced Bowie, is a pattern of fixed blade fighting knife created by James Black in the early 19th century for Jim Bowie, who had become famous for his usage of a large knife at a duel known as the Sandbar Fight. Now already, that's paragraph one of Bowie knife per Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Already controversial. Oh, yeah. So Created by James Black. <laughs> Half of you right now are like, what? That's yeah, not like, true. It's Snowden. <laughs> no. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, already we're going to kick off on that. Since the first incarnation, the Bowie knife has come to incorporate several recognizable characteristic design features. Although in common usage, the term refers to any large sheath knife with a cross guard and a clip point. Again, next controversy. (laughs) It has nothing to do with either of those two features. Although one of them, I'll give crossguard. The crossguard, yeah, is usually pretty common. But 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 if you look at coffin handles... Oh, yeah, coffin handles are big. A lot of them don't have crossguards. Like the Sheffield era, which are all authentic Bowie knives from the era. Yep. You know, so... So we're going to take a step back. So we're two paragraphs in, and we've already got the controversy going. So I am going to go to this awesome article that I found. There it is. In field and stream. Oh, uh, what what year? Uh, I know this has got to be an old one. 2004. That's an old one. Yep, yeah, that's that what counts. I meant. Yep. Yep. <laughs> 2004. <laughs> now, this article aligns so closely to my perception of the mystique behind the Bowie knife. Okay. Okay. So, you guys hang on. This isn't necessarily an opinion piece, but the field and stream article aligned very well with it. And I'm just going to read it directly from the website. It is from Field and Stream's website. So it's uh, fieldandstream.com slash history tack buoy tack knife. No American knife design carries the heft or history and legend as does the famous buoy. Pronounced buoy. Again, Thanks. again, another reference yeah. confirming that it's buoy. Books have yeah. been written about it. Knife historians argue vehemently, little plug, and with <laughs> self-righteous and sometimes self-serving ardor about its genesis and evolution. Buoy knife history and more to the point, Bowie Knife legend shaped American ideals of what a knife should be for nearly 200 years. It's been a fixture in hunting camps from the Rocky Mountains to the deep, deep south swamps. Gripped by bare-mauled guides or worn on the belts of leather-clad trappers, it has also been a central character in sporting art for the last century. 
Most outdoorsmen recognize the knife instantly and can't help but to have a visceral response to the Bowie's signature sweep, size, and silhouette. Odd to think, then, that James Bowie, famed Indian fighter, Alamo martyr, and the knife's namesake was pro- would probably not recognize the thing. That's true. So the yeah. knife that Jim Bowie yeah. used in the famous sandbar fight is nothing like we conjure up when somebody says Bowie knife. Well, it's been it's been it's been extrapolated and made made an extravaganza like of itself and like a caricature. It's it's, it's almost like the telephone game as far as knife design. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks a lot, so. old Sheffield. Uh, <laughs> the sandbar fight. The unli- oh, so this is we're going to delve into the sandbar fight itself. The unlikely epic of what is now known as the Bowie knife design began on a sandbar in the Mississippi River across from the rough and tumble town of Natchez, Mississippi in 1827. A cast of characters assembled there on September 19th for a formal duel between Samuel Levi Wells and Dr. Thomas H. Maddox. The offense was an insult to a woman never disclosed and long forgotten. As was customary, each duelist brought along a small entourage. Among the group supporting Wells was a slave trader, land speculator, and Louisiana planter named James Bowie. I almost said Bowie. Hmm. Maddox and Wells stood eight paces apart, left side facing left side. They fired twice, missed both times, and shook hands. As they were leaving the dueling grounds, however, their companions decided it was a fine time to settle a few old scores. A grisly melee ensued as the original duelist watched one man fired at Bowie. Bowie drew a large knife and took chase during which he was shot through the chest. In the next few moments Bowie was clubbed with a pistol and shot twice more. While he was down two assailants attacked with sword canes. Bowie slashed one in the gut. The other man stabbed him through the hand and body. Still impaled Bowie grabbed his opponent's coat lifted himself off the ground and sunk his six six blade heart deep sunk his blade heart deep i'm sorry i'm not a reader guys i'm just a talker <laughs> um i mean these are the things that legends are made of yeah, this is this is a legendary fight and something definitely happened there yeah there's there's some sort of a beginning to that and, and that's cr- i mean just yeah. think about what they just said he had been shot now the way i was told and you guys may vehemently disagree with me is that resin actually passed off his custom knife that he had made under his supervision or to his design and he passed it off to jim before the fight ensued Mm -hmm. and he said hang on to this probably during the duel itself right and he said hang on to this and then everything went crazy so it wasn't really jim's he was just a ruffian yeah. You know, he was just a brawler <laughs> and a hell of a knife fighter. Uh-huh. And Resin handed him this knife just in case things got crazy, and things got crazy. And it seemed to come in handy at that point. At the huh. end of the horrid outrage, as one newspaper account billed it, Bowie was bleeding from no less than seven wounds. He wasn't expected to live. He did, of course, for another nine years until he perished in the, in the even more confounding mists of the Alamo. But from the sandbar fight rose his reputation as a knife-fighting master that grew to mythic proportions, fueled in part by the frontier public's infatuation with his knife. From then on, Bowie's every altercation was fodder for the press. Various reports have him engaged in hand-to-hand combat dozens of times. (laughs) It was reported he was attacked in Texas by three hired assassins. With his terrible blade, he decapitated one, disemboweled the second, and split to the shoulders of the skull of the third. American men claimed for clamored for a knife like Bowie's, and Bowie knives were worn by soldiers, buffalo hunters, senators, and governors. A life of its own. More than a dozen makers of the original sandbar fight Bowie knife have been fingered. From a New Orleans knifesmith known as Pedro to Bowie's older brother Resin, among mo- the most likely candidates is a trio of blacksmiths, Love or Lavelle, Snowden, Jesse Clift, or James Black. 
So what they're referencing there is huh. who actually made and designed the knife. Now, uh, according to the Bill Adams book, which is a fairly definitive <clears throat> copy of the most comprehensive collection of authentic Bowie knives. Now, that doesn't yes. mean they're the knife that we're using in the sandbar fight. That means that they were knives that were made in the era from 18, what did I say, 1837? Is that what I said? 1827 yeah. on to like 1875, I think mm -hmm. is like the Bowie knife era. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's where the legacy started. Yes. I mean, and so, so you had, you had a lot of common patterns. A lot of people interpreted to be this, the Bowie. So make yeah. me a Bowie knife. Imagine that you don't have right. Google. Imagine that you don't have YouTube. You, imagine, you know what I mean? You, you have, you have the, what, what, what were they? The penny novels, the dime novels. Yes. yes. And, uh, you know, you know, detailing the fight and you had the, you had the news outbreaks and you had the, 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 the fanfare behind, behind uh, people. What were the town criers? Oh I yeah. Oh, I forgot about too. that. Yeah. It's there like, was a vocation. Hey, that went right. uh, south. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd be a town crier tomorrow. That sounds like fun. Maybe that's kind of what we do now. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Here yeah, like, here Industry criers. <laughs> yeah, um, nobody. This is quoted directly from this. Nobody knows who the hell made it and what it looked like. Asserts James L. Baston, past president of the American Bladesmith Society and author of James Bowie and the Sandbar Fight. <laughs> At the time, so this is an ABS master who's like nobody knows what it actually looked like or who made it. Yeah, he's got he's got the credit to be able to say that. Right. So. <laughs> At the time, it was described variously as large butcher knife and peculiar shaped and formidable knife. Whatever its original shape, within a few years, the so-called Bowie knife assumed some sort of its more contemporary characteristics. The coffin-shaped handle, the heavy crossguard, the sweeping clip blade with its partially sharpened top edge. There's no question that the knives were deadly. Across the, the young country, according to one breathless account, buoys were drinking blood from New Orleans to Dubuque and from Savannah to Brazos. In 1837, the Arkansas Speaker of the House killed a fellow legislator with a buoy on the floor of the Arkansas House of Representatives. Like, this thing is, wow. I mean, it's sweeping the nation at this point, and they're, and they're bloodthirsty. Um, <laughs> We're going to have our own sandbar fight here on the public floor. That's it. Yeah, oh, that's the same awesome. year, Alabama passed a law stipulating that anyone who killed another person with a Bowie knife shall suffer the same as if the killing had been by malice and a forethought. In 1828, Tennessee banned their sale. Wow. So there we go. First yeah. AR-15 right there. Right. Perfect. Yep. Or switchblade or whatever you want to use. So yeah, <laughs> Bowie knives were the cause of violence in the hands of madmen. Um, by the mid-19th century, the cutlery industry of Sheffield, England... We call them Old Sheffield, in <laughs> contrast to New Sheffield, which is where we're sitting right now. Where some 30 shops turned out mass-produced knives and other metal goods was flooding American ports with various incarnations of the Bowie knife. Some were very good. Others were as weak of steel as they were true to the Bowie lineage. Some Bowies sprouted a brass ridge along the back of the blade, supposedly positioned to snag the edge of an opponent's knife during the Civil War. Many Bowies grew to the size of small swords. So, sure. I mean, they just got bigger and weirder and bigger <laughs> right. and weirder. Right. The true blue Bowie. What? Bowie. Bowie. Sorry. It's going to take me a while. I've got 35 years of mispronouncing it. <laughs> it's going to be at least two or three days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, give me a couple hours, guys. Mm -hmm. One of the best known Bowie knives today is the Musso Bowie, owned by Bowie knife collector and film industry Art Joseph Musso. It's a frightful knife with a nearly 14-inch long blade that some believe to have been James Bowie's personal knife. But most serious Bowie knife students say Mark Zaleski, editor of Knife World, looked to a much more subdued knife as an early example of the intermediary steps between... This is very small print, guys. I'm sorry. And shame on you, Field and Stream, for putting me through this. Um, <laughs> between whatever was used at the sandbar fight in later forms. The Searles Fowler Bowie has, a long, has long been displayed in the Alamo. The straight-back knife 
sports a checkered ebony handle, and a tiny cross garden was given as a gift by Bowie's older brother Rezin in the late 1830s, and so bears the stamp of Bowie family approval. Now, Rezin Bowie, again, according to the lore that I've had crammed into my skull, mm-hmm. is the original designer maker of the knife. Right. So, but his knife in later times when to be reproduced because it was lost alleged to be found by an actor who was a friend of Jim's. I think Jim gave it to him, Jim Bowie. Yes, uh, I've I, heard this too. He gave yep. it to an mm-hmm. actor who I can't think of his name off the top of my head. He, he was a playwright. No, not not a writer, but but a play actor. actor. A play actor. Play actor, yeah, yeah play actor. Yeah. And, you know, big, you guys remember in Tombstone, Billy Zane's character? I mm-hmm. kind of picture that guy whenever they describe him. And so, <laughs> um, and I guess after he passed away, he still had it in his estate. And mm-hmm. I, supposedly that knife is still in existence today. And to the best of my knowledge, what Laura, like I said, I've had taught, um, that is the actual beginning one. It was made by a cutler, either in Pennsylvania or France. I think it was a French, French cutler. Gotcha. And so what I was getting a look from my bride. She's sitting right here. Oh, I forgot to introduce you guys. Yeah, it wasn't for you. Yep. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, it's not just Matt and I sitting here. No. So. We have, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We have the lovely ladies of Vehement Knives slash Skinbender Leatherworks here and... Uh, and I'm in the middle of the buoy discussion, but I would like to introduce them. Miss Sis, Jenna Martin. Yeah. Hi, guys. How you doing? That's Jenna. And then we have Miss Ashley Ricasso. Hello, guys. And they are here to answer all your leatherworking questions, as well as kind of give a peek as to what we do. So once we get over the history segment, which is kind of a monologue, then we're going to open it up freely, and we're just going to talk shop. So I hope you guys enjoy it. We're very lucky to have them sit in with us. We are sharing two microphones. So uh, bear with some of the audio quality as it's hard to cram so many heads so close to one microphone. Um, all right, back to it. Resin approved the Bowie knife that is hanging in the Alamo today. I wonder if we can track that down. Yeah, it's hanging in the Alamo today. I think okay. field trip. Oh, is it? Oh. Field trip. Field I think trip. field okay. trip, yeah. Okay, I'm down. So <laughs> click that donate button, guys, because we need to go to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Other knife historians hold that perhaps the truest Bowie knife extant, meaning an early knife with a defensible connection to James Bowie himself, is Bowie Number no. 1, an exquisite work owned by, owned by and exhibited at the Historic Arkansas Museum in Little Rock. It's an awesome piece of steel, nearly 18 and 3 8 inches long, manufactured with a coffin-shaped handle, wrapped in silver, and lacking the signature guard that would define the later Bowie aesthetic. By most accounts, the knife was made by James Black, a Washington, a Washington, Arkansas blacksmith, whom the Washington Telegraph blamed in 1841 for inventing this far-famed deadly instrument, according to a recent article in Knife World. Engraved on this knife's discussion plate is the phrase, Bowie Number 1, and while it is known that James Black didn't mark his knife, some historians figure this one was so important that Black or a later engraver marked it as such. Well, Black wouldn't have known... So there's a flaw in that right there. Black wouldn't have known that it was going to be such an important knife. Mm, So he would have had to mark it after the fact, too. Black or a later engraver. You know what I mean? So I don't think it was him that did it initially. Uh, But like all the other original original quotes, Bowie's, no one knows for certain if this is a knife designed by the hand of Bowie himself or if that hand ever held it. All anyone will agree on is that the Bowie knife, whatever it was, became a symbol of the frontier's brashness and bravado and that 176 years after the legendary fight that birthed it, the Bowie knife seems destined to start more arguments than it settles. Well, <laughs> since we live in modern times, I can absolutely agree to that statement. Well, we, were, I, we had a number so, of people say, do not touch on this on the podcast because it's so... I mean, it is like... I, I wish I knew more sports teams and I would give rival right. teams or something like right. that. But it's a very uh, div- 
divisive, I guess is the word. Divisive, divisive and diverse. You there could, you go. Would both be applicable here. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But I think, yeah. So, so there we go. Uh, now, I want to give you guys the full scoop according to Wikipedia specifically on the, the legendary sandbar fight. I said this is going to be a little bit of a long segment. I spent a lot of time thumbing through this and printing this stuff out. And it's interesting and it's of epic proportion. So just think of it as a Tolkien movie, except with no CGI. <laughs> but Hang plenty on. of dwarves. I'm sorry. No shortage of dwarves. No shortage right. of dwarves. <laughs> I, we'd be hard pressed to kick over twelve feet if Jim and I stood on each other's shoulders. So, yeah, not even close. I think. Yeah, I think yeah. if I were to stand on your shoulders, we'd be as tall as my older brother. Yeah, exactly. We would finally <laughs> yeah. know how dirty the top of the fridge really is. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't even know that it exists. Is the top to the fridge? There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Funny side note, uh, I used to drink about a gallon of milk a day when I was a child. And uh, you guys, we're just going to take, I'm going to take a breather. I used to drink about a gallon of milk a day when I was a kid. Holy and crap. Every yep. day I would open the gallon of milk mm-hmm. and I would tear the ring off the cap. Right. And I would throw it on top of the fridge. <laughs> My mom's short too. Right. I never gave it a second thought. I'm like a young 12, 13 year old uh-huh. into my early teens or whatever. And I, I do that every day uh-huh. for about two years. Holy crap. When my mom moved. Yeah. Freaked out. What is this? There was a giant blue, green, white bird's nest on top of the refrigerator <laughs> that was milk caps for two years. Hundreds of milk caps. And on the sides of the fridge, behind the fridge, total disaster. So there's that little and, bit of trivia. And uh, Matt got his first lesson in hoarding. And now I'm borderline lactose intolerant. I guess I overdid it on the milk. So, uh, but I've, uh, very, I've broken very, very few bones in spite of gravity's uh, best efforts. So... Uh, <laughs> The Sandbar Fight, also known as the Vidalia Sandbar Fight, was a formal one-on-one duel that erupted into a violent brawl involving multiple combatants on September 19, 1827. It took place on a large sandbar in the Mississippi River near present-day Vidalia, Louisiana. American pioneer and folk hero Jim Bowie was seriously injured in the fight. Though the site of the brawl was originally a neutral island in the middle of the river, the main course of the river has since changed, and the site is now located on the west of the modern river on Giles Island. The river's original path, however, still serves as the border between the states of Mississippi and Louisiana, and the site of the brawl is therefore within Mississippi. (laughs) Um, Interesting little fact there, I guess. Geolocate the exact point. Yeah, exactly. This is where it happened, guys. Uh The Sandbar fight followed prior conflicts that had occurred in central Louisiana. Members of the wealthy and established wells and... I'm going to say CUNY families before I mispronounce that. Uh, <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I hope it's CUNY caught. families. It's CUNY. Who, it were, who were close relatives were engaged in ongoing feuds with many of the region's newer families. The subjects of the disputes included competing financial interests, allegations of vote fixing in a sheriff's election, dishonored notes or bad loans, denied bank loans, and it is rumored the honor of a woman. Several participants in the brawl had engaged in prior duels, fistfights, exchanges of gunfire. Two attempt, two prior attempts at resolving disputes by dueling had ended without resolution because they had either devolved into shouting matches between seconds or because one party failed to appear. So this, huh. this is a powder keg just because yeah. of the characters in, on the scene, right? Yeah, nobody's willing to like let it go. Or... No, it's like Hatfield-McCoy yeah. yeah, status. Yeah, right, you know? right, right. Um, the duel that became the Sandbar fight was initially arranged over grievances grievances between Samuel L. Wells III and Dr. Thomas H. Maddox. Sound like a couple country jakes or you know, city jakes to me, to be quite honest with you. But, yeah. um, both of Alexandria, Louisiana, 
They agreed to do to a duel at a neutral site, eventually choosing a wide sandy shoal in the middle of the Mississippi River because it was considered outside the jurisdiction of local law enforcement and thus less likely to subject anti-dueling laws. <laughs> international waters. We're talking about a sandbar in the middle of the Mississippi, and they're treating it like international waters. Um, <laughs> Oh my Both goodness. Wells and Maddox, the primary local law enforcement, and thus less likely... Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped a line. What did I say, guys? The primary duelists were attended by seconds and several friends and supporters. Wright, in particular, was known to be violent. In a previous encounter, Wright shot Bowie with the intervention of observers prevented Bowie from then killing the smaller Wright. Afterward, <laughs> Bowie carried a sheath knife in preparation for a rematch, which occurred in the sandbar fight. Again, that last line is up for speculation because uh, one of the other tales says that Rezin handed it to him as the fight began to unfold. And gotcha. that he didn't actually have it on his person at that time. Right, Again, here, here, take this. One of those situations. Just yeah. being a ruffian, right? Mm-hmm. Um, of the 12 listed participants, the duelists and surgeons played minor or pacifist roles during the brawl. The sec uh, there's a list on Wikipedia which cites the duelist and the seconds and a surgeon. So that it's like a table. I'm not going to read you a table because it's a graphic thing. And I f forgive me, guys. I'm still getting over this crud, so I'm going to be sniffling and coughing and just generally <laughs> disgusting sounding over the radio. But if you want a podcast, you're going to have to endure it. Um, <laughs> da, 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 da. I think I think I think we get it. Yep. The seconds and supporters were all active brawlers. Half were killed or badly injured. There were also at least five additional local witnesses, two plantation owners, two additional doctors, and a guide. Some unnamed slaves likely witnessed the brawl as well. The duel itself. On Wednesday, September 19th, 1827, at midday, Wells and Maddox, accompanied by their seconds and supporters, met on a sandbar near the town of Natchez, Mississippi. Jim Bowie supported Wells, while Norris Wright favored Maddox. In total, 17 named men were present. The Wells party arrived first by a small boat from the Louisiana shore. The Maddox party and local observers then arrived by horse from nearby Mississippi Plantation House, fording a bayou. The duel was conducted by formal rules of the time, with a lengthy delay between exchanges of fire. The non-combatant witnesses, including the surgeons, kept a reasonable distance from the duel for the duration of the fight. Wells and Maddox each fired two shots, and as neither man was injured, resolved the formal duel with a handshake. Insulted okay. a woman, okay. as lore has it, uh -huh. had a duel, yeah. both missed, right. shook hands. That Game over, right? right? That should be the end of it, right? Because, that's it. Because I, th I think the entire idea is that after you, you handshake after two shots because that's what fate has decided. Yep, exactly. Right. Game right. Up. So Let's go slap backs and drink beers, put all this behind us. Right. Don't insult the woman again. We all walked away with our lives today. But nope. It didn't um, go that way. <laughs> at the conclusion of the initial duel, the party of six, Wells, Maddox, McWhirter, Crane, Dr. Cuny, and Dr. Denny, prepared to celebrate survival. They walked toward the remaining Maddox partisans because no participant of the duel had violent relationship with that group. The duel participants were balanced in number, three each, and unarmed with the exception of the seconds. Crane carried a loaded pistol in each hand. The duel participants were intercepted by the remaining Wells partisans. Crane now faced three additional armed men. Seeing this from a distance, the remaining Maddox partisans began running forward to join the group. <laughs> General Cuny, who had previously fought with Crane, is recorded as having called out to him, Colonel Crane, this is a good time to settle our difficulty. If thems ain't fighting words, I don't know what is. Right? It's a good time to settle our difficulty. <laughs> Crane fired, missing Cuny, but striking Bowie in the hip and knocking him to the ground. Cuny and Crane then <laughs> no. exchanged fire, with Crane sustaining a flesh wound in the arm and Cuny dying from a shot to the chest or thigh. Oh, my goodness. So many Steve, inconsistent I know. references. Yeah. <clears throat> high or low? 
And so, <laughs> Bowie, rising to his feet, drew his knife and charged a crane who struck him so hard upon the head with his empty pistol that it broke and sent Bowie to his knees. Wright appeared, drew a pistol, and shot at the fallen Bowie, missing. Wright then drew his sword cane and stabbed Bowie in the chest, but the thin blade was deflected by his sternum. As Wright <laughs> attempted to pull the blade free, Bowie reached up, grabbed his shirt, pulled him down upon the point of his Bowie knife. So he pulled him down onto his knife. Grabbed him by the collar, right down. Pulled him right into that big Absolutely. old knife. Ju- what was it called? Julius Caesaring somebody? No, the, the, <laughs> yeah, something? That's how- I've never heard Julius Caesar used as a verb. Um, oh, right, right, died quickly. <laughs> Behind the Bowie, Blade podcast. And, and, and Bowie was shot Pioneering again. new verbs. Okay. <laughs> We're in the middle of a knife fight, man. I, I'm sorry. I'm All sorry. Right. All right. I'm Keep sorry. the language to a minimum. And the language lessons. Let's see. Right died quickly and Bowie was shot again and stabbed by another member of the group. As Bowie stood, both Blanchard brothers fired at him and he was struck once in the arm. Bowie spun and cut off part of Alfred's forearm. Carrie fired a second shot at Bowie but missed. As the Blanchard brothers fled, Alfred was shot through the arm, in quotations, by Jefferson Wells, while Carey was shot by Major McWhorter without effect. The brief 90-second brawl left Samuel Cuny and Norris Wright dead, and Alfred Blanchard and Jim Bowie badly wounded. The unarmed Dr. Denny was shot in a finger and a thigh. Others may have, been, <laughs> may have suffered minor injuries. Crane claimed that a bullet grazed the skin of his arm. Crane helped carry Bowie away, with Bowie recorded as having thanked him, saying, Colonel Crane, I do not think, under the circumstances, you ought to have shot me. (laughs) (laughs) One doctor reputedly said, how Bowie lived is a mystery to me, but live he did. The five doctors who had been present for the duel managed to patch Bowie's wounds. The dead and wounded, at least... At least, and perhaps all partisans promptly crossed the river by boot, by boat. <laughs> after the death of General Cuny, so uh, another inconsistency here is that I actually heard that Jim threw his knife to an assailant on horseback. Yeah, and that was that was that, that's like the main centerpiece of the whole thing, right? Right, is that he it's, threw it and took the last guy out, and whether or not he killed him, he at least incapacitated him with the throwing right. knife, well, and maybe, that is, a, I think, a major piece. In yeah. the story that was omitted. Right. Uh, that, that definitely was not in the description of what happened. No. And, uh, the, the minutes of the fight, if you will. Right. Yeah, but, yeah. exactly. Bowie's sounding a lot like Rasputin right now. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he sounds like, like Rasputin, like impossible to kill. And then we found him a week later floating in a river after we chained him and shot him and poisoned him. Yeah. He's been stabbed 11 times, shot 46 times. You could read newsprint through a chest cavity. You know, uh... It's, uh, this is in the aftermath. It's difficult to determine the precise order of events which led to the brawl between Wells and Maddox's supporters, as the fight was described by at least eight eyewitnesses with significant discrepancies, such as Crane and Bowie exchanged fire. Crane missed Bowie, who was later shot in the hip. Crane deliberately shot Bowie, who, was, who remained standing. And Crane shot Bowie in the hip, knocking him off his feet. So eight people at the same fight described it this many different times. Just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> On September 24th, five days after the brawl, Samuel Wells wrote to the press claiming that Crane's shooting of CUNY consisted, pre, uh, consti- con- con- constituted, 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 holy. I, I know, it's, it's late, it's fine. Constituted. <laughs> I can read, guys. I Premeditated At like murder, a fifth though. grade level. CUNY constituted premeditated murder. On October 3rd, Crane wrote in a letter, Bowie at the same time was drawing his pistol. I drew away I drew away at him. He says now that I did not touch him, but drew his fire. He lies. I shot him through the body as he is shot. <laughs> I could not miss <laughs> shooting not further than 10 feet, and the object is to excuse his conduct for killing our poor friend, Major Wright. Crane was attacking any claim of self-defense that Bowie might mount with respect to Wright's death. 
These and other accounts of the brawl by participants were colored by legal considerations. Samuel L. Wells III died within a month of an unrelated fever, so his testimony was not long available to support criminal charges. Discrepancies mm. also exist in many other elements of the accounts. The number injured, the nature of their wounds, the precise sequence of events. The brawlers themselves provided few and probably biased accounts and avoided local law enforcement and the press. Unbiased observers, who provided numerous accounts, could not initially reliably name the participants, many of whom were strangers to them. The eyewitnesses, that guy over there shot that guy over there, and that guy over there fell down, but I think he's all right. You know, it doesn't really paint a colorful picture, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the eyewitness accounts were also embellished with time. Regional and national newspapers soon picked up the story, which became known as the Sandbar Fight. Bowie's fighting prowess and his knife were described in detail. He had matched or bested multiple opponents after being severely wounded. <laughs> Most of the eyewitnesses and a few of the participants provided accounts to the press. Bowie notably did not. Eyewitness accounts agreed that Bowie did not attack first and that the others had focused their attack on Bowie because they considered him the most dangerous man among their opposition. <laughs> because he's Resin's a-hole brother. Right. That's who this right. guy is. Now, these other guys are all kind of aristocratic with cane swords and right. their speech patterns B and everything. Bowie was the thug that some guy brought along for... for um, just there at the bar with Resin. You gotcha, know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and this just unfolded, you know, in front of him. And he's like, let's do this. You <laughs> let's know what go I mean? to a let's duel. All right. It. Yeah. That's funny. Within a few decades, press accounts departed greatly from the eyewitness versions. A grand jury was convened in nearby Natchez, Mississippi, to determine whether or not criminal charges should be brought. Bowie was never called to testify, and no indictments were returned. Or if I was reading like I was earlier, I'd say indictments. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Bowie was seriously wounded in the confrontation. According to one account, two bullet wounds, seven stab wounds, and other injuries due to Crane's thrown pistol. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could have seen all these guys in wool coats just losing, losing their, their minds. Crap. Yeah, 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 thank you. Yeah, yeah. looking for a euphemism. Uh, just, I mean, just do, like throwing guns at each other, like just freaking out, you know? Uh, or alternatively, three bullet, four stab wounds, and required months to recover. He prominently wore a large sheath knife thereafter. Thanks to the national attention drawn by the sandbar fight, Bowie and his knife became well-known throughout the country as icons of rugged frontier lifestyle. Many craftsmen and manufacturers made their own versions of the so-called Bowie knife, beginning with James Black. Again, controversy strikes. Right. A blacksmith from Arkansas who designed the original for Bowie in 1830. They put that very succinctly with a period at the end, but the fact of the matter is that is still up for debate. His fame and that of his knife spread to England, and by the early 1830s, many British knife manufacturers also producing Bowie knives and exporting them to the United States for sale. Mm -hmm. By 1835, while Bowie was still alive, Bowie knives were advertised without further explanation. By 1838, <laughs> so this guy's still alive, and they're like, this guy's knife, and these people are profiting uh -huh. off a guy who's reading his own name in the newspaper right. and has nothing to do with it. It's actually the Arkansas Advocate. Yep. I was reading about that earlier. There you go. Interesting. Hmm. But were you doing your homework on the I Bowie knife? There you go. Was. Nice. <laughs> That's why we keep her around, guys. She's diligent. <laughs> Uh, by 1838, a newspaper writer from New Orleans assumed that everyone else had seen one. Bowie knives... Yeah, okay, I read that right. This wasn't that interesting of a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Bowie knives remained popular weapons until at least the 1870s, when large caliber reliable pistols became widely available. Also controversial. Uh, the, design, <laughs> the design of the knife evolved into a wide range of blades during the 19th century. By the middle of the 20th century, it was associated with a more specific design, a large sheath knife with a concave clip point, sharp false edge. It's not that false then, is it? 
<laughs> cut from both sides and a cross car to protect the user's hands. T- Terminology is not a not a normal thing. I, the sharp. Yeah. I, you know what, guys? Everybody listening, please let's let's put an end to the sharpened false edge because once it's sharpened, it's not exactly false, is it? So just think about that. It becomes a legitimate edge. So they should call it the sharpened legitimate upper edge. Right. Yeah. Right. So let's start that trend because it rolls off the tongue so easily. The, the sharp oppose the uh, sharp opposing edge. Yeah. Sharp opposing Top edge. edge. Sharpened swedge. I sharpened think sharpened swedge, swedge is yeah, acceptable. Sharpened swedge would be good too. Sharpened false edge. The, the, dor- the, the, dorsal, dor- sharp. the dorsal sharp edge. <laughs> Included yeah. a uh-huh. tangible spectral top cross guard. Contradicting but, yourself. All right. So oh, that's hilarious. No, this is really interesting. I hope you guys are liking this because I'm I'm super getting off on this. And I'm saying this while I hold my Bowie knife. Even though I'm call it whatever I want. I have to call it this. I'm holding my Bowie knife in my hand right now as you, I'm reading this. You can call it a Bowie knife even if you make it yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> After the sandbar fight, Bowie moved to Texas, married into wealth, searched for a lost silver mine, lost his new family to cholera... <laughs> And became a leader in the Texas Revolution of 1835-36. He famously perished at the Battle of the Alamo. Bowie was renowned as an early American frontiersman and a legendary knife fighter, though the only knife fight in which he likely participated was the sandbar fight. I believe that. So there you go, guys. There is the absolutely murky, clear-as-mud history of the Bowie knife, there are more resources, and I printed out a lot more stuff. Oh, this is interesting. So just to show. Okay, one more. <laughs> yeah, and this is it until I get to the next one. I told you it's going to be a big one. I mean, this is a big deal. This is a, I mean, a lot of knife designs were born of this genesis. Oh and yeah. What's even crazier is that what we consider again the Bowie knife to be is actually nothing like the original, and that is the only thing everybody agrees on, right? Yeah, I think everybody agrees on that one. And, and so. Yeah. So many designs. Anytime you see that clip and that guard, that deep belly, you know, mm-hmm. larger blades, they don't even all have to be large. Some were daggers and still considered Bowie knives. Yep. I mean, they there's this awesome account in Bill Adams' book where they talk about a coat check where you would check in your knives. Oh, we were talking about this before. We almost we, named the we, podcast. We almost oh, yeah. named the podcast something similar to that, but we could never find the actual term. And it wasn't romantic that. enough once no. you kind of found it. But yeah, yeah, it was a. It's like a coat check. So when you go to the theater or something like that, you check your knife at the door with your coat. Right. And you could hear. And this is a firsthand account. Now it's obviously not a recording. It's from the eighteen hundreds, but it's a written account of. You could hear the sounds of the coat check calling out one eight inch Bowie knife, silver plate, death's head pommel. <laughs> and a guy would come show his ticket and take it. And that was just a sound in an era that is long forgotten. And we never thought that mm. everybody had one of these amazingly popular knives stuffed in their sash or they're hanging off their belt. You know, so it's really yeah. it's worth taking a minute to address this because so much influence was born of this simple design, which is actually somewhat of a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was based on a lie, but yeah. it's still tradition. <laughs> so this is taken from Wikipedia's page giving the history of resin or reason Bowie. Um, I like resin because it's R-E-Z-I-N, and it's just how you pronounce that mm-hmm. word, but some people say it's pronounced reason. Um, one afternoon, resin was hunting and killed a rabbit. He was going to skin his rabbit when he hit a bone. His hand slid down and badly cut his fingers. Inspired to prevent the, a reoccurrence, he subsequently designed what became known as the Bowie knife. This knife had a blade nine and a quarter inches long and one and a half inches wide. The following year, on September 19, 1927, James Bowie and, my, and Major Norris Wright attended a duel on Sandbar. You guys know all that. 
Um, let's see. Newspapers picked up the story, which became known as the Sandbar Fight, and Bowie's fighting prowess and his knife were described in detail. There is disagreement among, among scholars as to whether the knife used in the fight was the same kind of knife now known as the Bowie knife. Many different accounts exist of who designed and built the first Bowie knife. Some claim that James Bowie designed it, and others claim others attribute the design to noted knife makers of the time. However, in a letter to the planter's advocate, Bowie claimed to have invented the knife. And, and when they say Bowie, this is under the resin Bowie page. I think they are talking about resin. Res, not Jim. Not Jim. Talking yeah. about re- resin Bowie. Yeah. Bowie claimed to have invented the knife, and many Bowie family members and most authorities on the Bowie knife tend to believe it was invented by Bowie. Now, I don't know why they don't give him a first name there. His <laughs> grandchildren, however, claim that Bowie merely supervised his blacksmith who created the knife. So again, this is another angle. After the sandbar fight, you know, that last paragraph, and here we go again. After the sandbar fight and subsequent battles in which James Bowie successfully used his knife, it became very popular in many craftsmen and manufacturers. So this kind of goes into the Sheffield thing mm. and gives these loose dimensions criteria, I should say. So even then, so from one to the other, it's there's so much, and nobody knows. It's totally lost gotcha. to history because the experts, the absolute experts and authorities... The scholars that have studied this specific topic more than 28 minutes with Wikipedia articles still can't agree. So uh, you, you all, guys are free to do your own yeah. digging. All we can do is represent the different facets of, of, of the story. From, I think from that's what makes it interesting. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I would agree. There's if, so many different If it so was actually areas. in like a glass globe yeah. and presented and they're like, this is the knife. And everyone's like, that's the knife. Then you're like, wow, that's a real piece of Americana. Yeah. But the fact that this is so steeped in mystery, I, I just, I think it's the coolest thing well ever. i think that's what drives the interest yes i mean absolutely the I mean, mystique, that, yeah, yeah. The, the mystique i mean you have everybody else's interpretation of it going i have jim bowie's original knife no, no. you don't <laughs> you you made that up yeah, we know yeah, nobody because knows. This, because yeah. because this guy over here also has jim bowie's original, original knife. knife it says so, bowie number one on it so it must be legit <laughs> all right guys yeah. i'm gonna give you guys a couple minutes to go get a notepad because we're about to answer some questions that people are asking about the leather shop with the lovely ladies of vehement knives slash skin bender leather works so stay tuned we'll be back in a minute go get a pen and paper hey jim What's up? If you carried a Bowie knife, yeah, and, and you were away from the shop, and it was dull from being a ruffian and disemboweling people. Well, I only do that on sandbars. Okay. Only when I take a boat. I think there's a bar in town. There, the actually, sandbar. it is called the Sandbar. We should go do it. We 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 should. We we should miss twice, then shake hands, and then fight to the and death. then fight to the death. But you know what? If one <laughs> what? of us survived, yeah, chances are a Bowie knife would get dull. I know it would, after slicing you up into ribbons. What would you do to bring it back? You know, there's only one option. That would be to use my KME sharpener. Goddamn, better believe it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should have said that. I apologize, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. so... <laughs> you guys who have been longtime listeners know that KME is a huge supporter of Behind the Blade podcast. And reciprocally, we are huge supporters of KME sharpeners. With the KME sharpener, whether your Bowie knife is a V-grind or a convex grind, full convex, convex edge, recurve, 
Anything you can dream up on that night can be touched up and brought to a screaming, cutting, time and space type edge. You can even mirror polish it if you have the patience of a saint. I don't have that patience. I like a good toothy edge on mine. So I, I get it right to where it bites and slices paper quietly, and I'm ready for action. I'm ready for another battle, another duel. I like to get it so I can see the fear of my enemy's eyes in the edge. Ooh, which you can definitely do. <laughs> but you can definitely do that with those kangaroo straps in the... Uh, and the um, CBN compound yes. beautifully included inside of that kit. That's right. They also obviously offer a huge product line, boasting stuff for scissors and your lawnmower blades. They have uh, the convexing rods, like I mentioned earlier, recurve attachments. Uh, my personal favorite is the axe sharpener. I, that, I don't know why I'm so in love with that invention, but it, to me, just the way the magnet sits on the axe pole, like it, just, it's it's so inventive just to use magnets in such an obvious way for something like that. It's great. I think yeah. it, I, 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 man, I just think it's <laughs> awesome. Um, furthermore, this is worth mentioning right now. As you guys know, we're in the middle of our big drive to get to 500 subscribers, and we are well on our way. We're well, well, well beyond the halfway point. So we're at the point of no return. 500 subscribers is imminent, but you guys have to wait until that point. The guys over at KME Sharpeners have offered up one of their kits, including a swag pack. Swag pack. For giveaway once we reach that 500 subscribers. So details to follow, but please share this show, Behind the Blade Podcast, with all your knife-loving friends. And we want to get to 500 people subscribing so that we can give this kid away and celebration. So, Jim, how do you subscribe to Behind the Blade Podcast? You can go to Behind the Blade Podcast. You can find it on iTunes. Search Behind the Blade Podcast. Google Play. Also search Behind the Blade Podcast. SoundCloud.com slash Behind the Blade Podcast. And you can also search for us and follow us on Stitcher. You can follow us on SoundCloud as well. And any one of those things gets the metrics back to us and it boosts that subscriber number. Make sure that you guys do that. And then you too can be an owner of a KME sharpening system and you too can be ready for the next duel. And we are back from that awesome history segment. That is extremely, extremely cool stuff. All right. So we're now into tech tips. This is a segment that I'm actually going to defer my position to the Skinbender crew. This is Jenna Martin. Hey. And Ashley Ricasso. Hi there. And they're going to be answering questions to a question box that was posted up on our Facebook site forthwith. All right. So, Matt, you want to lead us off with a question? Let's do this. All right. Um, you should definitely read the question in some sort of a French accent first. At least I don't word. think that. I, I don't think so, Jim. I think it's necessary. Yeah, I don't think so, Jim. Okay. All right. Continue. All right. I thought I'd try. First question. Uh, this comes from Dan <laughs> Jakeway. Found out I've been pronouncing his name incorrectly this entire time. We thought we were being all culturally sensitive and everything. Jakeway. No, it's Jakeway. No, Jakeway. Right. Question from a rookie. Just beginning to grind. What is the most economical steel to learn basic? And guys, these are going to be mixed up between BTB questions and the skin bender questions. What is the most economical steel to learn basic grinding and shaping of blades? Investing in some steel and expectations are this will be part of the learning process. Love the podcast. Keep up the awesome job. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Ashley. Jake. As Hi, Jake. <laughs> um, um, I think whatever whatever cheap actual knife steel that you can get your hands on is probably the best way to go. I think 1095. I think 1075. <clears throat> okay, yeah, 10 series steel. I can agree yeah. with that because if you screw up on the heat treat, you ju- can just reset it. Right, and then and then you do it again, and then if you if you just start on something large, you can you can just kind of refine that down smaller and smaller until you have nothing, and then you start over with another bar. And it's cheap. And it's cheap. How how cheap is ten seventy five? Oh, it's like three or four bucks a pound. 
Oh, I, I oh, mean, really? you're into a six yeah. foot stick of quarter inch for twenty dollars. Oh, uh, six yeah. feet. Yeah, six, six foot feet. stick. That, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a lot of stuff. You know, thereabouts. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I would definitely recommend that the ten series. Ten seventy five seems to be a little bit more forgiving uh, than ten ninety five. I guess in heat treat it can get kind of brittle. Uh, okay. O1 is another really good. Because it's very forgiving in heat treat. Yep, I could definitely agree with that. I've torch treated and motor oil quenched yes. one steel before, now, and I got a decent edge. You can, so. because it's so forgiving. <laughs> I now, know, the I one know. drawback of 01 is typically it comes in precision ground form for tool making. Yes. And that makes it more expensive. Yes. So, so. if you are learning to kind of cut your teeth, um, you know, some people are really opposed to file knives. I'm I'm not one of those people. I, I, I'm not opposed to them. It has to be a good yeah. quality file, well, especially sure. a vintage file. Well, right? spe- spe- yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're, especially if you're just starting and you're learning, and you can pick up like a cu- you know like you know, ten old used files for five bucks at a garage sale. I mean, like, I mean, like it, that's perfect. At right. That point. One drawback is you are limited to the dimensions of that file. Yes. And so. Yes. Yeah, I would say uh, file steel to start. So you cut your teeth grinding and you have zero exposure financially. You're out dollars. Yeah. Um, from there, 10 series, yep. uh, 1075, mm-hmm. 1095. Yep. 10, I think there's a 1084 or something yeah, like that. T- there's 1084. There's there's a 1070s. There's 1080s. And then there's, 10, I think, just only one 1095. 1095, right. 1095. Um, and that's going to be inexpensive, but yield. Look, many major knife manufacturers today still use 1095. Oh, so yeah. you'll get you know one of the best blade steels. Not the best blade steels, but you'll get one of the most prolific blade steels on the market. It's tried and true. 1095 is going to be probably mm-hmm. your cheapest bet. And then if you want something a little bit more fine grained, then move to the 01. Yeah, and absolutely. So I mean, be... yeah, those are, the, and they're still great steals. You can still make a good knife out of them, yep. period. So. All right. So now we're going to bring it to the girls. I saw a thread where people are using tattoo guns. I've never said that before. To pattern and decorate leather sheaths. Do you have any experience with this? Any idea how well does it hold up? Have you guys ever tattooed any leather? I have no. not, but it is skin, so I don't see why it wouldn't work. It, yeah, I mean, it makes you, you have tattoos on your skin, obviously, I have tattoos right? Tattoos on yeah. my skin, but yeah. I feel like the leather is probably a bit of a different consistency. It would be a learning curve, and I have never touched a tattoo gun. Could you? Could you get a? It is subdermal ink, though, so it should stick around for it a should. long time. Maybe, but, maybe, uh, have you I tried? Have no idea how that would react. Could to you a rent a leather. cow for a few hours in a tattoo gun? <laughs> Well, if or... it's cow alive, it's way different than the cow. Alive. I, I know, I know. It's, just it's like totally true. Red udders. With <laughs> <laughs> it says mom. <laughs> it's it's just moo. Synchronicity is true. No, you guys have never tried a tattoo machine on anything that wasn't your currently used hides. Correct. Right. Okay. But it does sound pretty cool. It does uh, sound I neat. Mean, Definitely something to check out. I wonder how if you had to have to treat the leather to get it to absorb or something. I wonder. I wonder if you do that before oiling. I think you would have to do it post post oil. I, I don't think so. Well, I would. I, 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 don't, I don't know the properties well enough. Supple. I mean, yeah. if you think of the uh, comparison of human skin and sure. a piece of leather. Yeah. Well, leather's obviously your dried, tanned. Yeah. You know, it depends. I've seen some bars. broads at the biker bars that they're, it's a one-to-one <laughs> comparison. Like, is that veg tan? They're like, no, honey, that's backseat tan. Next question, Alex Harrison. In true vehement style, I am convi- I, I've convinced my wife to start doing my leather work for me. A basic rundown on starting tools would be lovely if you guys could work it into the conversation. Well, we're not going to slip it into the conversation. We're going to answer this direct question. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I see a lot of, uh, female leather, leather, what would you call it? Leather smithstresses. 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 Um, I, I don't know if it's because they are, uh, 
in tune with it, or if they're good at it, or or what makes have it... Have a coercive husband? <laughs> or they have a coercive husband, like, I like knives, please make me things to put them in. Um, I, I can tell you guys that there are some pretty specific tools that go along with even the most basic sheath. Um, you know, a good utility knife to make sure that your cuts are straight. A good cork back ruler is mm. key to make straight lines where they don't, where the ruler doesn't slip off the leather, because that's a huge pain in the butt. Um, Obviously, the drill press that's used by the knife maker, I, I see you using that a lot in your shop. So mm -hmm. that is one way to expedite the sheath making process. You can even put needles in there and use it as an arbor press. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, and just to drive the stitches. Absolutely, you can. And, uh, you know, you want to get uh, the right size uh, drill bit to make sure that it is easy to stitch the leather through because sometimes that can be a pain in the rear as well. Right. Um, you want to make sure that you have a grooving tool which uh, lays grooves into the leather so that you can make a straight stitch line and also an overstitcher, which is basically like a spiked wheel. Like a spur. Like a spur. It's like a cowboy that, spur. That lays out where your holes should go so that you are getting even and straight lines with your stitching. There you go. And I think huh. the most important part of a lot of that is to have clean, straight work. That's right. Ashley, do you have anything to add to the beginner's kit of sheath making? As far as the finished quality of the sheath, I think the edge beveler is important to go around and bevel those corners, round it off real nice, especially if you're not doing a bunch of sanding and reshaping. If you have a good cut from the beginning, go through, clean up those edges before you burnish. And that kind of, so the edge beveling tool uh, has a handle kind of like a, like a round screwdriver and all, and that kind of just knocks the corner mm -hmm. off, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it literally bevels the edge. Right. Mm -hmm. You can get them in different sizes? Yep. All that does is just like literally just rides the edge. It just makes this bevel. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. I, I just a nice that. rounded corner cut yeah. that you can take all the way around the you know most superficial and the deepest layer of the sheath itself, and that way it looks real nice and rounded and finished and intentional. Right. Anything else? Uh, Any leather working tools? Uh, I or would just, say the tools? one of the biggest things I've noticed in my time doing the sheaths was the difference in your burnishers. So when you're doing the top where the welt and the face all attach, you're going to want a square burnisher. And when you're going around, you're doing the sides. I've noticed that the round burnisher really puts the right finish on, but uh, adjusting the shape of the burnisher to the shape of what you're trying to achieve is m important. So there you go. So a couple burnishers will get you by through most perimeter contours. Almost any shape you could fabricate with leather, you could burnish with one square and one round. And one round. Yeah. And these are all available at Tandy Leather, yeah? Nice. I mean, obviously you can home make some of the sure. stuff, mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of the stuff is co commercially available. Interesting. And so, and Jenna, you were saying that you were thinking of maybe posting something up on Skinbender. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, I've got, obviously, some sheaths to do, because that's what we do for Skinbender. That's your job. Not only sheaths, <laughs> yeah. but we do cover a lot of, a lot of sheaths. Um, I will be working on some sheets next week, and I will uh, go ahead and gather the things that I most use in the shop, and I'll put up a picture in Skinbender, and you'll have to go look at Skinbender Leatherworks to see that picture. And Jim, where can our listeners find Skinbender Leatherworks? On Facebook? Yes, they can find them on Facebook in your normal search bar, and it Ooh, is facebook.com slash skinbenderleatherworks, all one word. Also, uh... We are doing a giveaway in Skin Better Leatherworks for 1,000 likes, and we are very close. 
So go ahead and go over there and give me a like and come check out my picture. 997 likes. She'll likely do it tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so, it's tomorrow. So, yeah. <laughs> there All it right. is. All right, Jim. So I finally tried it. We alluded to it in the last episode, and I get it. What do you get, Matt? The nano cloth from Genda Industries. It's pretty spectacular, isn't it? I, so, look, this is. Have you seen those cell phone cases that have like micro suction cups on the back? And yes. Like so I don't know why it reminds me of that. It doesn't actually have suction cup features, but its microscopic technology is just a reminder that we are in the 21st century. <laughs> and the fact... And, and people are using 21st century technology for knives. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you wouldn't think that you could actually improve on the old carborundum stone, you know, and maybe on, you know, your belt or the horsehide strop in the barbershop. But truthfully, these are like thirsty little microscopic pockets that hold up that diamond emulsion. And it just gives you a metered delivery of abrasive to your edge so that you get a consistent grab even with like light to light medium pressure itself levels and it gives you this amazing finish to your edge that can't be replicated even with the modern kangaroo strops it's absolutely true i mean kangaroo strops there's impurities and there's there's inconsistencies in the hide itself even though it's the finest hide that you can get it is it's still a natural material and you can't guarantee it nanocloth is totally synthetic and it is even made by man yep homogenous all the way across and i i'm a huge proponent of kangaroo especially over cowhide now Jenda also carries the larger kangaroo hides and all actually an all different size the one i have is a bench block size kangaroo hide and i thought that was as good as it gets i thought that was absolutely <laughs> top of the line and i think for anybody out there it still is but if you really want that top tier elite gold class then you have to go visit the guys at Genda industries um i mean if you're overseas at that point but otherwise visit their website and get that nanocloth because it is a game changer. It really is. It's, it's fast, it's quick, it's light, and it's available at GendaIndustries.com. Be sure to tell them Behind the Blade sent you. Next question, Dan Malewski. Looking for old knives at antique stores, I've noticed that most of the old sheaths have snaps and rivets instead of welts. These are Zollingen, Western, Schrade, etc. Multiple sizes, etc. I did have an old Kinfolks fixed blade with a welt, although not as thick as most sheaths made today. Please share your thoughts on this, rivets versus welts. Well, so the uh, the rivets are a uh, cost-effective way to keep the sheath held together. Um, it's, it's easier than stitching all of the way around. Although, uh, when you think about a welt, and you see some of these older sheaths, you will notice that there are threadbare, or where the tip goes into the sheath, towards the bottom, the threads are cut. Uh, this is because there is no welt in the sheath. So the welt kind of, so the rivets will stop the knife's edge from sawing through the sheath, right. but they will do nothing to prevent the tip of a knife from passing between two rivets, thus Correct. cutting the threads. And a welt kind of insulates and gives a protective barrier over the threads all the way around the perimeter of the sheath or in the case of a fold over along the stitched side. And also helps to guide the knife into the sheath correctly so that you're not pushing the tip through the leather itself. It's creating a box versus an envelope. Correct. Mm -hmm. Right? Is that a good way to describe it possibly? Yes. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. So that is the reason. It's much more cost effective in the sense they don't have to make dies for a welt, which is another component also. Uh, Mike Lewis. Thanks, Mike Lewis. What all do you offer? 
I don't know that everyone is aware of the awesome goods outside of your knife sheaths. Any plans to add to your lineup? Thanks. Bob's making keychains like crazy. Yeah, yep. you have it. You got like a deck of keychains. There's going like, yeah, like 30 of them in the shop, different colors. I've been practicing different finishes. And that's like I said, saving your scraps is a good place for me to practice dying without committing to somebody's sheath. Right. So it's been a nice, <laughs> nice uh, resource for me to practice my grooving because grooving around curves is it's just it's one of the most difficult things on there. On, Aside from the dying, so that's been a great opportunity. That's true. Those, those are two lots very of those challenging. Coming out. Yeah. They are very challenging. Lots of those. Practice yeah. is perfect. Practice makes perfect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, we also offer uh, a, I mean, a variety of leather goods. We do wallets. We do slipline wallets that kind are pretty minimalistic sweet. Wallet, minimalistic wallet. Minimalistic mm -hmm. wallet. Cards. Uh, mm. I love them as a lady because they fit in our tiny pockets. Yeah. <laughs> been something I've been fighting for. Well, I guess most of my womanhood. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they fit nicely in purses. Um, I've really been working on uh, trying to do um, some sheets that are thin and some sheets that have many ways to carry them. We've got a modular like sheet a modular system. modular sheet system so that uh, you don't have to buy three sheets. You can buy one that serves three purposes. You can carry it in the waistband. You can carry it on your molly gear. You can carry, carry it scout, scout style. style. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm working on a, a Miami rig so you can carry it inverted That's under a shirt. Cool. So, you just did one with a big Altoids tin kind of thing. Yep, yep you guys will we'll see yeah. that later for Drop Forge Survival. He will be covering that in one of his <laughs> videos. And, uh, you know, just... just uh, things that can be carried in many different ways for many different purposes. And I think that's really our specialty these days. Yeah, no, definitely. And I would like to see added to the lineup. You guys know how much I love slash hate slip joints. So I think <laughs> pocket slips are going to be coming up in the near future because they're pretty cool. And I EDC one that I've made personally in the skin bender shop with Jenna Scraps. And uh, it holds my little lens light and my Victorinox Pioneer. And I think something along these lines may be in their future also once it gets past the ultimate design phase. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think those fun. are great ideas and they're a yeah. fun thing to make. I've been kind of delving into it with a couple customers and I think it'll be something we'll definitely seriously visit. Cool. All right, let's get to this. Part of the EDC. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I know that I want one of those. They're, they're pretty the slick. Uh, what are the basic tools to start with for leatherworking? I would like to make pocket sheets for slip joints. <laughs> hey, Sam, stay off my turf. Uh, this is from Sam Fortenberry. Just kidding. I would like to make pocket sheets for slip joints and a belt sheath for the Buck 110. Um, Sam, hopefully she was able to address that in the previous question from... It's a lot, it's a lot of the same tools, right? Alex Harrison. It mm -hmm. It's going to be the same. I mean, and they're... Rivet setter. We didn't specifically right. that, but those are little things that and, and they you are forget about until you're halfway through the project. That come along with leather making. I mean, you know, just right. to just to get into Tandy or whatever your uh, supplier Supply. is, um, I mean, you're probably looking at 100 to $150 in supplies and tools before you can start sheath one. Oh, yeah, and that's including a hide and stuff like that. And right. I mean, there are some kind of starter kits, but I would say you guys have seen Skin Bender's work, or if you haven't, check it out, and you'll see it on their page and their portfolios. Follow them, and Jenna, go forward with that idea of just showing what tools you're using throughout the build process, and then you guys take notes on it, and I think it's a great opportunity to see exactly what you need, because it's hard for people to be like, I need 
maybe 47 tools and remember every single one of oh, them yeah. as you go through. Although things like the edge beveler and the slicker or, you know, like the drill press and the uh, overstitcher. overstitcher, you know, I mean, right. so there's a lot of little things that go into it and a lot of stuff can be kind of fudged as you go until you build up this kind of toolbox, literally, of leatherworking tools. Well, and always feel free to message me with questions that you have and I'll try to get back to them in a timely manner. But I'm always willing to, to give mm. information to help anybody out because leatherworking is pretty Just awesome. Fun. <laughs> there you go. Fun. Yeah. Uh, next question comes from Colby Carpenter. What are your thoughts on wet forming a stock leather sheath like the sharpshooter sheaths that come with, my, uh, with a lot of Bark River knives? My experience is that it improves retention at first, but eventually results in a looser fit over time. Thanks. So, I'm a- Colby, Colby, you're nail on the head, man. Yep. That's it's exactly it's exactly the same thing that we've that we've had too. So we'll have a brand new sheath. We'll we'll wet fit it to a knife, and it'll snap beautifully. Pop. Yeah. pop. It it pops in. It, it sucks down. It clicks in, and this beautiful little this beautiful little um like a like orchestra right. of movement that just brings the knife the down goes. for about an hour. And, and then it comes right out again. I mean, and then it just gets super loose. Um, <clears throat> so I guess my thought is just don't wet form it. I mean, just get a tight sheath that's tight at first that slowly breaks in over time and it'll form itself. And then eventually, after a few years of regular use, like, like I have a Highland, I have a Highland sheath for my ultralight bush holder. <laughs> it is just now starting to not retain it. I've had it for about five years. There you go. And I've worn it nearly every day. So I'm gonna, I'm, I'm about to upgrade to another Highland sheath. But, for those first couple of years, it was just super tight the whole time. It would it would scrape its way in, scrape its way out, and it would hold itself down. Wet wet forming on a leather sheath that's already formed to a knife to to be held a certain way is, in my opinion, cool at first, a waste of time in the long run. Exercise and futility. So yeah. I'm gonna go one step further than that, Jim. Sure. And explain this in very plain English. Everybody, get close to your speakers. You do not wet form a loose sheath if the sheath does not fit the knife you cannot soak it in water and have it magically form to it it doesn't shrink like that the reason we use wet forming and the only time we apply wet forming is when the sheath is too tight to clear the handle scales and it must be wet formed and stretched to match the dimensions of that knife at which point it is dried and oiled and it read when leather is wet it does not shrink it, yeah it does not <laughs> shrink and so it stretches so wet forming a loose sheath will result in a loose sheath okay so that's what's going to happen if you have a sheath in the manufacturing process let's say it's folded in half or it's stitched together with two fine welts and you have the scale sticking you know proud of the blade material so much that it won't fit imagine just like a, a narrow slot like a like a bayonet scabbard you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's not going to fit the handle in there you have to wet it to form it around it and then it stretches to its exact dimension and you have a lifelong sheet that fits with good retention but you cannot take a loose sheet soak it in water and expect it to turn into a tight sheet it just doesn't work that it's not alum and when honestly for me uh when i design a sheet um most things shouldn't be wet formed it should be designed to fit the knife as is uh, wet forming to me is is terrifying, and I really don't like to do it. I can, and I have the means and ways, but I really just I have an issue with putting a knife in a wet piece of leather and letting it sit until it's formed the right way. Well, especially the customs that you guys get in, right? You know, and that's what makes a difference. This isn't. I mean, yes, they manufacture knives for the vehement knives. Uh, sheaths. She, they manufacture sheaths for the vehement knives. 
Um, but they also get high-end customs that are sent in. And some of these are Damascus. Some of them are high-carbon, low-chromium steels. And I don't care how much saran wrap you use. It's terrifying to stuff a $1,000 knife into, into a, a wet, wet piece, piece of, of salty leather. leather. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's, it, you know, <sighs> so do with that what you will. All right. So <laughs> next question. Uh, Ken Nice. Nice wallets. <laughs> That's it. There you go. Thanks, Ken. That's right. And he drew up a picture of a wallet, which he seems to be enjoying. So thank you, Ken. We appreciate the kind words. And David, uh-oh, David Mercier. I Sorry, I pushed a button on my phone. David, I, I, huh? I, I was, I was going to say, if you don't have it, I can read it. No, oh, I, uh, do you want to read it? I could if you'd like me to. So I, mean, I, can, I, can, I have it now. But you know what, Jeb? Yes. Entertain us with your soothing voice. Well... <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a lot of different colored compound bars in the shelves at Bark River Knives, and I'm curious about the ones other than the black <laughs> and white. <laughs> okay, I can't do this. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> that I assume are the same as what one can buy. I, I also noticed paper rack cylinder packages with different numbers that suggest grit size. I'm wondering about. Thanks very much. So uh, we did cover this a little bit um, in episode 22, so definitely check that out about the different kinds of grits that we use. Um, as far as the tubes that you saw, they weren't exactly paper wrapped, but they were plastic wrapped. And that is the satin glow compound. Venison sausage. <laughs> that's what it looks like it looks like big old pieces of venison sausage but that is actually a cut compound that applies to those muslin stitch wheels that I think Matt and I both use yep. and um, they start at 120 and they go in, um, in uh, all the way down the progression all the way to about 600 grit and that's what you guys and, use and there may be different grits outside of that spectrum that, or no as, as far as I know I think that we encompass that spectrum 120 oh, 122 43 2600 i think is all, everything that they use and i think earlier they were experimenting with an 800 grit Ooh. which i would love to come back to i would love to come back to that but i don't think that they have that and i have not checked um the manufacturer's catalog in a long time so i don't know exactly what they have but i know that they were specializing in a lot of sizal wheel compounds ah. like for like for smoothing out brass or gun barrels or yep. or uh, brass um what, what, what are they called the brass the brass wheels with with all the fingers of brass on them that wire wheels? Wire wheels that are just, just super fine finishing. There's yeah. compounds that they have for that. Oh wow. That that do that do really good job. Um and but that's not not that's not anything that we do. Everything that we do is all abrasive based and just mushing mushing scratches kind of a base for a mirror polish. Um <clears throat> but that's pretty much what the cylinder shaped packages are. And um the black, green, and white um that we offer in as midget bars in the kits are the exact same compounds that we use in the shop on muslin wheels so if you've got a buffer of muslin wheels you can use those compounds and know that it is the exact same thing that we use in the shop just less of it just less of it yeah. it's a midget bar versus right. a versus a full size eight, 18 by three yeah shut up ashley you gotta <laughs> <laughs> a midget bar <laughs> it's a midget bar that's what they call them they call them midget bars so <laughs> so yeah that's it um, as far as any other email questions, I don't have any other email questions. We didn't get them. You guys are dropping the ball out there. There you go. I think we gave them short notice. Give That's true. That's true. <laughs> we were glad that everybody was able to fire something off to the girls. Uh, yeah, thanks, and guys. Hopefully that shed some light on some stuff. And be sure to follow them on Skinbender Leatherworks and also in the Vehement Syndicate group uh, because we do uh, we share between. Obviously, we're in the same building. It just depends on whose phone got picked up and used as a camera at that moment. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, Yours really is the best. I believe, sir, that is a podcast. That is a podcast. Everybody, thank you so much for joining me. Us. Us. <laughs> <laughs>
This has been Behind the Blade Podcast, episode 23. My name is Jim Stewart. Tonight, our hosts were Jim Stewart and Matt Martin with the ladies from Skin Better Leatherworks, Jenna Martin and Ashley Ricasso. You can check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash Behind the Blade Podcast. You can check out Skinbender, facebook.com slash Skinbender Leatherworks. You can check out their Instagram, I believe, by the same name. Our Instagram is Behind the Blade Podcast. You should definitely, definitely subscribe to us because we have an amazing giveaway coming up soon. The second we reach 500 subscribers, you can do that by checking us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher, following us there. And coming soon, YouTube and our video channel for our plans coming forth with four Behind the Blade and the podcast. And we will see you guys next week. Next week.